Hi there. Welcome once again to Totally Fantastic Title. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Krista Wallace. First of all, I want to congratulate Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer, on having her first day off in five months. Um, in fact, she and uh, as well as uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix had the whole weekend off. <laughs> Just about every day of the week, Dr. Henry's kept uh, British Columbians up to date with the information about cases of COVID-19 and um, given all kinds of advice and answered endless questions. And she's just been working tirelessly, as has uh, Health Minister Dix. Um, there was an article in the New York Times about Dr. Henry recently, and I learned stuff about her I had no idea. What an amazing woman, and we are so fortunate to have her working for us here in BC. So, Dr. Henry, I toast you, and I hope you had a wonderful weekend doing whatever you wanted to do, because it is well-deserved. Do you find that you're reaching out to people that you haven't talked to in a long time? The other day, I had a really terrific visit from a friend I hadn't seen in several years. We were trying to think how long it had been. I think it was about uh, 2016 or something, the last time we really saw each other, and even longer since we actually spent any time together. So uh, she has a little baking company here in the Lower Mainland called Cookies and & Company, and I placed an order, and... Uh, she delivered them to my house and we had the opportunity of having a nice little visit and a catch up. It was really, really lovely. And the bonus is that the almond toffee squares and the brownies and the cookies are absolutely delicious. And I had one of the cheddar chive muffins for breakfast this morning. So, ugh. anyway, it was really great to see her. And if you're a lower mainlander, look up Cookies and Company. And now let's just get on with episode six. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace Chapter 6 Nothing Like a Party Val Raker stayed with Kean and Governor John Linden in the meeting room after Derry and the others had gone. His need to refresh himself after a long day's journey was superseded by a desire for conversation with his friend. The governor took a carrot stick. What I still don't understand is why Dregor went for Eckhart first when he could have gone directly south from his own stronghold and taken the guarded realm. Why skirt round it? I've asked myself that question more than once, Valraker said. Eckhart has a smaller population spread over a larger area. I wonder if he hopes that if he takes us with apparent ease, he will influence Kean's opinion of me on a personal level. How would he do that? Kean scoffed. Valraker grimaced. Does it really sound so far-fetched? Come, my friend, your disdain for those things considered weak is common knowledge. And it's also well known that the only reason we held out as long as we did was because of the extra deployments you sent us more than once. He popped his last bite of carrot into his mouth. Kean cocked his head. It's also common knowledge that Dregor attacked you a third time only days after his second massive onslaught. To finally succumb under that kind of pressure does not signify weakness. I'll remember that, Val put in. It shows only that Dregor is willing to spend his countless minions like they are mere grains of sand. We value our soldiers more highly. Kean dunked a carrot in the onion dip. Valraker smiled. Does this mean our friendship is intact? Could it be that he has another plan for the guarded realm? The governor said. I wonder if he's making allies there. 
With a mostly elven population, that would be hard to believe, Val said, but certainly not impossible. Kean's chin tipped upward. The human population of the guarded realm might be corruptible, but not the elves. He raised his palm to his governor. No offense meant, John. I'm speaking generally, and it has been proven time and again that humans tend to be more susceptible to negative influence, that is all. Governor Linden half shrugged, half bowed. That could say more about the human capacity for independent thought. Val smirked. He's got you there, Kean. Anyway, it could be as simple as a desire to use Eckert's port to deploy armies in all directions. And it is without question that Dregor has some plan for the Tree of Life. Infiltrating the guarded realm might further his plans more effectively than an attack. He stroked his cheek with the back of his scarred hand. It's been an awfully long time since he made a move. One begins to feel anxious and expectant, Governor Linden agreed. We have heard rumblings in the northeast, but our spies have not been able to disclose anything that gives us cause to act just yet. Tanis Malfi is preparing Balan's armies for an invasion. Kean rose and indicated his three duchies on the working map that covered the wall opposite the fireplace. Duchy boundaries were clearly marked with troop positions noted in charcoal. Coral is the smallest duchy, which would theoretically make it an easier mark, but it is mine. Coral's well protected between Shea and Heath. Dregor would be foolish to try to split me down the middle. He slid his finger along the map eastward. Balin, however, is the eastern flank of the continent and is all too close to that port in Eckert. Duchess Malfi does well to feel vulnerable. Even though I stationed the remainder of my armies in Balin, Valraker said. The governor spoke firmly. Tanis Malfi is shrewd and won't panic. She is preparing because she is wise, but she also trusts that she isn't alone in this war. Valraker swirled his wine glass. We will not sit back and let Dregor pick us off one at a time. Soon after, Governor Linden left to greet the guests. The door closed and a hush fell upon the room as Kean chewed and swallowed. Then he asked the question Val had been waiting for. So, who was Kier? I haven't the foggiest idea. The dark elf sipped his wine. He had looked forward to discussing Kier with Kian since he met her. He had some ideas of his own and wanted to see if his friend's intuitive sense came up with anything similar. She is the most unusual person you've picked up in a long time. Where did you meet her? In Wanaka. Where else does one meet fascinating people these days? But in this case it was... a fluke. I happened to be nearby when a dispute broke out between a rather arrogant man and this young woman. The way she spoke to him caught my interest. But then she challenged him to a duel and turned out to be hiding armor and a very serviceable bastard sword under her cloak. I was ready to help if necessary, but I wasn't needed. He paused to savor his wine. She fought very well. He didn't expect her to be as skilled as she is, yet she wasn't overconfident. She beat him quickly and cleanly with only one misread of a feint. No showy blade work, just skill and economy. Clearly you were impressed, Kean said. Yes, she was efficient, no wasted effort. More importantly, though, the man cheated. He attacked her from behind before the duel had been declared open, and then threw a knife at her after she'd bested him squarely. So she took him out. A greener fighter might have backed down, and the last thing one needs is a fighter who turns soft when it matters most. She showed mature battlefield judgment. He took a carrot and dipped it. There was only one left. So you asked her to join you, based on one fight? It wasn't quite that simple. 
Val hesitated, swallowing and gently pulling on the hairs of his mustache. I may have asked her solely on the basis of her fighting, but I was struck by several things during our conversation while we were still at the burnished blade. Remember how I said our meeting was a fluke? First of all, she ordered elvish wine. Excellent! Good way to make a first impression on you, Kian said. She didn't know who I was at that point, so how would she know that? Valraker went on, knitting his eyebrows. But let me ask you, Kian. You've never seen her fight. What was your first reaction when you spoke to her just now? You mean apart from her sense of humor? Valraker smirked. Kian swirled the rich black wine in his goblet. She is very aware. She knows I will want to see what she's made of, and she... Well, she's absolutely resolute that she will not fail. His brow furrowed as he sipped. She did not tell me why she came to Shay, which in itself is not unusual. I completely understand her reservations, but she was not pressured into telling me, which I do not often experience when people meet me for the first time. And what did that tell you, Val said? That she has confidence and strength of character. Yes, but it's more than that, isn't it? Valraker's eyes glittered intently. She's far more perceptive than is normal for someone her age. I watched her when we entered this room. She sized you up, I dare say, more thoroughly than anyone else has had the nerve to. And do you know, the evening we met, I took her to the Twisting Pine, and we met Fennel in the woods along the way. Valraker tapped the arm of his chair with his palm for emphasis. I tell you, she sensed Fennel's presence before I did, and I was expecting him. Kian grunted. Valraker went on. That's rare. She has an inner quality that I can't define. There's a whole lot more to this one. I see what you mean. Kian's fingertips played with the carved grooves on the arm of his chair. I did get the sense that she was reading me just as much as I was trying to read her. Valraker nodded slowly, encouraging his friend. She is very guarded as well, Kian added. As are many people who travel the world. Valraker leaned forward, resting his elbows on his knees, and locked Kian's eyes eagerly. But Kian, tell me, do most farm girls in your duchies have a taste for elvish wine? How familiar are they, usually, with the dark elvish toast to the dead? Kian pursed his lips with thoughtful skepticism. Valraker continued, How many of them have a desire to travel outside their village, let alone through two other duchies? How many of them have detailed knowledge of weaponry, right down to the proper use and care of the yew longbow? How many learned to speak elvish? She speaks elvish? Kian did a double take. Wood elvish, to be precise. Kian shrugged. I suppose she's a bit of an anomaly, but so what? For the sake of argument, let me point out that lots of people like to push their boundaries, improve themselves. What is Hrath like? Val leaned back in his chair. I don't know. I've never been there, Kian admitted. Small. Valraker casually swirled his wine. Have many farm girls in your outlying villages studied the Wepnian? The Wepnian? You can't be serious. The focus, the footwork and positions, the unfailing balance, the agility of the moves, Valraker said, those little wrist twists that take years to master, that is how she killed him. But how would she... who could have... Kian trailed off in disbelief. I recognized her sword hilt immediately, though it took me a while to place it. 
can you guess who has lived in Hrath for the last twenty-odd years that we all thought had disappeared from Rydris, never to be seen again? No, I cannot possibly guess, Valraker. Does the name Brendau strike a chord, Kian? Kian carefully set his wine down. Brendathlan has been in Hrath all this time. Training farm girls to be sword fighters, Val finished with satisfaction. It's certainly a good place to go if you want to disappear, Kian said. And that serviceable bastard sword I mentioned, Val said, it was mine. Kian's jaw dropped. He frowned thoughtfully. Who is her family? We have not had that conversation, the dark elf said. Kian poured again in silence. That's interesting, you know, he said casually, that Brendathlan is in Hrath. That might explain something. He put down the bottle. Explain what? Val reached for the last carrot. Only two days ago a messenger informed me that Hrath had been attacked by Dragor's men. What? Valraker sat forward in his armchair, forgetting the vegetable. When? Well, it would have been a few weeks ago now, the high elf said. I have to admit I was skeptical when I was told. Why would Dregor bother to sneak through the lines and attack one of my tiniest northernmost villages? Except perhaps to goad me into some rash response. I sent a group of scouts to learn more before taking greater action. But if Dregor knew that Brendathlan was there... Valraker cocked his head doubtfully. Why would Dregor bother that much with Brendathlan? He's a Wemniar, but not really important politically. A knock on the door stopped him. Kian motioned for Valraker to hold that thought and called out, Yes? Acadia opened the door. I apologize for the interruption, gentlemen, but you did wish me to inform you when dinner was ten minutes away. Thank you, Kian said, rising. We'll talk more later. The last carrot went untouched. Kier followed Derry back down the circular staircase and into the foyer of the castle. It was the first time she'd seen the captain without his armor. His well-built muscular form was appealingly visible under his rich burgundy tunic and jade jacket. He'd relaxed his captain role for the evening, though the dignity with which he carried himself was not so easily discarded. There was more than one type of armor. Led by a guide who seemed far from put out by Fennel's friendly chatter, the group headed past the main staircase, around to a pair of large doors on the far side of the foyer. The sounds of music and raucous laughter coming through the open doors made Kier pick up her pace. Their guide led them into the great hall. The hall could hold far more than the thirty guests who had been invited from among Shale's higher-ranking citizens. A large square of tables took up half of the hall, occupied by officers wearing the colors of the castle guard, the city guard, and the shale army, as well as civilians. They indulged in the abundance of ale and wine, welcoming any excuse for a celebration, regardless of the short notice. A fire danced feverishly in the center of the room, surrounded by acrobats and jugglers. Musicians playing pipes, lutes, fiddles, flutes, and drums were accompanied by dancers and singers. The music, talking and laughing, echoed around the high ceilings, amplified to a delightful dissonance that consorted with the smoky haze from the fire and the smell of roasting meat from the kitchen. The torches that hung on the high walls between the tapestries and paintings cast flickering light onto the crowd. The servant led Kier and her friends around the perimeter of the activity to seats nearest the high table. 
No sooner had Kier sat down between Derry and Fennel than a horn sounded and everyone rose to acknowledge the entrance of the dukes. The juggler caught his props, the acrobat righted herself from her inverted position, and the musicians struck up a lively air. Kean, Valraker, and Governor Linden, with his wife, passed through the centre of the square. Acadia brought up the rear of the party. Kean had altered his attire by simply adding a deep red calf-length mantle clasped at the shoulder with a brooch. His long, rich blue tunic with gold-embroidered edging showed beneath it, belted in black. He wore grey trousers and tall black boots. The governor wore a burgundy waistcoat and necktie over his gold tunic, and his wife was lovely in a long jade-green gown with a bright red sleeveless surcoat. Her long, full skirt trailed along the floor at the back. Grey-black plates were knotted loosely at the back of her head, and she wore a little hat with a plume. Acadia had changed from the rust-coloured dress into one in a similar style, but fuller in the skirt, and of a royal blue that dramatically increased the brightness of her eyes and hair. Kier glanced at Derry, whose eyes followed the young steward closely. But it was Valraker whom Kier regarded fixedly. The dark elf had removed his black cloak, so the lustrous enameled breastplate that identified him as the Duke of Eckert was unconcealed. The belt around his waist shone like a flame, and all the metal armor he wore was a spectacular contrast to his black tunic, breeches, and boots. He fairly glowed in the firelight. His slightly pointed ears showed for the first time, with his long black hair tied back. Kier stared at him, her sense of awe rekindled. At four hundred and fifty years old, he still had such a youthful appearance— he had been through so much in that time, fought so many battles, defeated countless foes. Kier had no idea what other experiences life had brought him. All I know, she thought, is it's an honor and a privilege to sir, to work for him. The dignitaries reached the high table, and Acadia placed herself at the table directly opposite Kier's, in the spot closest to the governor, should he need her. Kier's eyes traveled along Acadia's table and noticed Sir Frederick with another man between himself and his pretty young wife. Kier started to ask Derry about this, but stopped as Governor Linden spoke. "'Good evening, friends. Welcome to this hastily arranged, albeit special, dinner. I hope we did not destroy any of your plans for the evening.' Laughter rang throughout the hall. Evidently, this was a much more enjoyable way to spend their time than whatever they had planned. "'I give you Lord Barthelon.' Kean rose. "'Thank you, John, and thank you all for coming to help me welcome my friend and colleague, Lord Valraker, the Duke of Eckert.' The gathering applauded. "'And also his travelling companions over to my right?' More light applause. "'I don't wish to frustrate everyone's appetites further, so let us be served.' The servants brought out the first course, thick broth with barley, as well as more ale and wine— Goblets were filled, toasts were made at each table, and the musicians struck up some lively background tunes. The servants displayed great agility, mostly not dropping or spilling anything, as they wove in and out of the chaos to and from the kitchen. Other servants busily removed the occasional mess from the stone floor. Kier feasted on lightly spiced roast mutton and pork, and though the meat was a touch dry, the gravy more than compensated for it. And, of course, the wine enhanced the flavor of everything. Kia remembered the question she had wanted to ask Derry. So, why isn't Sir Frederick sitting next to Acadia? She jabbed a bit of glazed turnip with her knife. Derry knit his brow in confusion as he swallowed a mouthful of potato. I don't know. I suppose he could if he wanted to. Why would he? I thought a man might like to sit next to his wife, or don't they do that in this duchy? Derry looked puzzled. Then his face cleared. 
No, Sir Frederick is Acadia's brother, not her husband, and though he is more than twelve years her senior, she does not rely on him as her chaperone. Contrary to what some believe, she was awarded her position on her own merit, and I can think of no one better for the stewardship. I don't doubt it, Kier said. Derry had spoken with more exuberance of conviction than Kier had thought necessary. She remembered the way her friend had watched the steward enter the hall, as well as their conversation while climbing the stairs, and she thought there might be more to his admiration of Acadia's qualities than his dignified manner expressed. Now that she knew he was not married, Kier allowed herself to more openly view the red-headed captain across the room. Once again, she was pleased by what she saw. He happened to look up and catch her gaze. Holding it, he raised his goblet and nodded to her. She drank from her cup without turning away. "'Who were the others at that table?' Kier set her cup down, broke a slice of bread into pieces, and slopped up gravy with it. "'I do not know them all, but the heavy-set one next to Acadia is General Ilsley, who is responsible for Shale's armies. Then Frederick, of course, and Usher Tompkin, another of the Shale guard. Perhaps he has been promoted since I last met him, as he is sitting at that table.' And the last one in the red jacket is Finn Tolstoy, the mayor of Shale. A servant came around with offers of more food. Kier gladly accepted. Tell me more about Kian, she said, catching the attention of both her neighbors. What do you think about this greatest swordsman in Rydris title? Has he come by it honestly? Who knows, Fennel said. Technically, he'd have to duel every other swordfighter. Derry put down a bone he'd been chewing on. But there is that one story from decades ago, he said, wiping his mouth. A young man, nobody remembers where he came from, Fennel put in. So this young man challenges Kean to a duel, claiming he can best him. It should come as no surprise that Kean beat him handily, Derry said. And as recompense for wasting his time, Fennel said, Kean demanded a token from the challenger. The upstart, more like, Derry said, but that's right. What did he want? Kier asked. Fennel was nearly bursting. His trousers! Oh, no! Kier laughed in spite of herself. But that isn't the end of it, Derry said. This fellow doesn't know when he's beat, Fennel said. Derry went on. This young man goes away. Who knows where to? Fennel said rhetorically. Derry frowned at him and proceeded. He comes back several years later and says he's been training and wants to get his own back. Oh, no, Kier said in sympathy with the young stranger. Let me guess. Exactly, said Derry. Kian doesn't even have to think about it. In front of a crowd of people, he doesn't even break a sweat as he toys with the kid, makes him work till he's red in the face, but doesn't hurt him, not even a scratch. But finally, Kian has had enough. Fennel cut in. He has the cheek to point out the position of the sun and say he's hungry. The arrogance, you mean, Kier said. Derry waved her off impatiently. The young man, on the other hand, looks panic-stricken, and Kean taunts him by saying, Is your mama going to be cross with you for being late for supper, or some such thing? Never mind, then. And he does this fancy twist thing and knocks the kid's weapon out of his hand. Clearly something he could have done ages before, but wanted to make a point, Fennel added. Derry leaned forward. Then he takes his sword and cuts the fellow across the cheek and gives him permission to brag about it and say, you should have seen the other man, to all his friends. Not very gentlemanly, Kier said, thinking of Derry's code of ethics. Derry shook his head gravely. Did he demand a token this time? Kier asked. He did, Fennel said. He took his boots, which was all the more humiliating for the kid because they looked new and it wasn't as if they would fit a high elf. 
Kier couldn't help but laugh, but her heart ached for the young man. What happened to him? The story goes he slunk away, Derry said. Far as I know, nobody ever saw him again. Kier scooped up her last bite of meat. Forgive me, but I'm not convinced that makes Kian the best swordsman in Rydris. Derry, his part in telling the story over, fell silent. Fennel said, Bet if you asked Kian about him, he wouldn't even remember. It was so beneath him. The elf stuffed bread into his mouth and began chattering about previous visits to Shale Castle. Not listening too intently, Kier absorbed his words along with the din from the hall. I wonder what Fennel's like if he has sugar. Murmuring politely in response to the elf's tale of being bitten once by a hedgehog, she observed the guests, amazed and amused by the brightly colored clothes they wore, the amount of food they ate, and the variety of responses to alcohol consumption. Every once in a while, her gaze stopped on Sir Frederick. She made quick observations, then moved her glance along. Unlike Derry, Frederick's mood was evenly balanced between seriousness and humor. She liked that. He and his sister didn't speak much, but that may have been because they weren't adjacent to each other. Frederick talked and laughed with his companions and came across as a genial person. Kier was all the more curious to know why Derry was so ill at ease around the night. She was pleased to notice that Sir Frederick glanced her way frequently, but she was not a blushing schoolgirl and she remained distant, her own attention to him not overt. The meal finished, her belly was full, and she felt supremely content. Kier and her companions savored yet another nectarious selection from Kian's supply of elvish wine. Kier drained her cup and offered to pour for dairy. He placed his palm over his cup. I've had two, thank you. Any more and I won't be able to stand. That's it? Kier poured a little for fennel, then refilled her own cup for the sixth time. I find elvish wine quite potent. Will you not need to be carried up the stairs? She laughed. Not at all. I'm barely tipsy. How are you enjoying yourself so far? Derry said, and she smiled at him hesitantly. Apart from the story about Kian, he had said little since their exchange of words at the beginning of the meal. Perhaps the wine was helping him get past the fit of pique that had come over him earlier. I'm having a wonderful time, she said. Definitely glad I came along. Perhaps I could take you on a tour of the city at some point and show you around. I'd love that, she replied. Perhaps tomorrow or the next day, then, depending on Valraker's plans. She agreed. Derry did not appear to have anything to add, and her attention was soon drawn elsewhere. The guests had begun to mill about, some venturing to the head table to pay respects to the dukes, and others gathered nearer the performers for a better view. Kier was mildly disappointed to see that Sir Frederick's chair was empty. She shrugged to herself. He knows where to find me. She was right. Within moments, the night appeared before them. Derry, a pleasure to see you again, Sir Frederick extended his hand. Derry rose to grasp it. The pleasure is mine, as usual, Sir Frederick. Derry's reply was extra formal, it seemed to Kier. She did not believe for a second that there was pleasure there at all. I continue to admire you for your dedication to the cause of your lord, in spite of his state of exile. The knight spoke sincerely, but Kier noticed a slight upward turn to the corner of his mouth. Our state of exile is the very reason that we must continue to fight for our cause, Derry said with controlled passion. We must never give up until we have regained the freedom of Eckert and all of Rydris. The older man nodded gravely. May Dregor soon meet his end. It struck Kier she was now in the real world and no longer falsely protected by isolation and ignorance. 
She had been more aware than most of her peers, thanks to her education with Brendau, but this was her first encounter with men who had actually been in the thick of the battle for years. She was gladder than ever that she'd chosen to leave Hrath. Apparently through with formalities, Sir Frederick changed to a brighter tone. So, Derry, have you fulfilled your dream yet? Derry's face elongated and redness crept up his neck. It seems to be more your dream than mine, he said with quiet restraint, but it is my own affair and I am not inclined to discuss it, sir, one way or the other. Affair indeed, Sir Frederick winked down at Fennel, who smiled wanly. We shall continue to await the joyous celebration then. Kier heeded her first instinct. Rising swiftly to her feet, she drained her goblet and extended her hand. I'm Kier, she announced, looking hard at Sir Frederick. He turned to her with a gallant smile. I was wondering when Derry planned to introduce me to Valraker's newest edition. Why trouble Derry when I'm perfectly capable of introducing myself? Sir Frederick's eyebrows went up, but he quickly recovered. I am Sir Frederick Hayland, Kean's captain of the guard here in Shale. I know. Ah, someone has kept you well informed. Derry's been making me feel at home as a guest in a strange city. Always the gentleman is our young Derry. So, have these rogues gone easy on you? You should be asking whether she's gone easy on us, Fennel interjected, a mild slur in his voice. Things have been altogether too interesting since she came along. Oh, in what way? Nonsense, Kier gave the elf a warning look. He only thinks that because he has someone new to blether to. Everyone else is tired of him and tells him to shut up. She grinned and Fennel blushed, reacting to both the ribbing and the rebuke. The last thing she needed was for people to talk behind their hands about the girl who killed a man in Wanaka. It wasn't something she was proud of. They were spared any more awkward moments by the announcement of the evening's entertainment. <laughs> more entertainment, she said. Shale certainly has its share of talented performers. She invited Frederick to sit down in the seat Jaskellen had just vacated on Fennel's other side. The mage had gone to check in at the guildhouse in the city— Janik had also left them to join the fellow Derry had identified as Usher Tompkin at the table opposite. To Kier's amazement, the young man actually looked happy to have the dwarf's company. A handsome young bard hushed the room with a few strums on his lute. The neck of the instrument was ornately carved of some pale wood in the shape of a swan's head. He plucked its strings lovingly and the notes floated gently upward to fill the entire hall and envelop everyone present, drawing them into the music. He began with the tale of the county alliance that formed the guarded realm. The ballad painted melodic portraits of unusual people and sketched scenic landscapes in Kier's imagination. She all but lost herself in the magical strains that flowed around them, but remained acutely aware of a barely disguised sullenness from Derry. "'What's the matter with you?' she asked quietly. "'Nothing is the matter with me.' He spoke too quickly and with too much determination for her to believe him. At least pretend to have a good time, she lowered her voice even further, even though you don't care for Sir Frederick. Derry sank into moodiness. She shrugged him off. She intended to become more acquainted with a certain somewhat arrogant but good-looking man who was not married to Acadia, and she refused to allow this tiresomely stone-faced fellow to dampen her pleasure. In a voice that spoke as melodically as it sang, the bard introduced himself as Becklin Arterian and expressed his honour to be the entertainer for such noble guests. "'I hope to see some dancing now,' he cried, and his fingers hopped along the strings to a spirited two-step. The lyrics were amusing, and without mentioning names, described the friendship between Kean and Valraker, in spite of the historical animosity between high and dark elves. 
The two subjects took the song with good humor. Becklin's lean frame was elastic, and his short dark hair bounced around his youthful face as he danced. Kier felt a hand on her shoulder. It was Derry. Would you like to dance, Kier? She stared at him. Derry Morant, did I hear you correctly? You enjoy dancing? Yes, I do. Do you? Kier shook her head. No, sorry, I don't. I trip so much you'd think I had five feet. But thanks, anyway. Very well, then. Derry bowed politely before moving off to find a partner elsewhere, and Kier's surprised gaze followed him across the room. She would have guessed that Derry wouldn't draw attention to himself, yet she admired his ability as he whirled about the floor with Acadia. He steered his partner with grace and elegance, contradicting his rough style as a warrior. He didn't laugh, but he did smile. Kier was pleased to see he was capable of it, and she thought he might actually be having fun of sorts. Acadia, of course, was beautiful and followed his lead expertly. It seemed to Kier that they must have danced together before, more than once. It occurred to her that maybe she should learn to dance, to be a part of... Oh, don't be silly. You never learned to dance when you were growing up? Sir Frederick moved to the seat next to her, which Fennel had vacated to join the dancers. Who had time? I was too busy practicing a different kind of footwork. She didn't miss his doubtful reaction, but chose to ignore it. Besides, if anyone had asked if I ever planned to keep company with the Duke of Eckert at Shale Castle, I'd have thought it unimaginable. It's still not as unimaginable as a girl wanting to practice fighting instead of dancing. Why in the world would you want to learn sword work? Kier's skin crawled with irritation. It seemed like a good idea. She watched Fennel float on his elven feet, and his partner laughed as she hopped and twirled, trying to keep up. She nearly blurted that she'd studied the Wepnian, but didn't think it would shut him up. It wasn't a clandestine art, but those who studied it generally didn't publicize the information. Frederick filled the silence. You must have had some specific purpose in mind. No, as a matter of fact, I didn't, Kier said with forced politeness. What made you decide to come to this part of the world and join up with Lord Valraker? He may simply have been making conversation, but she had the impression that he wanted the answer for reasons of his own, and his persistence was annoying. I lived in a village. I was bored, okay? She drank from her refilled goblet. Well, all right. Fennel and his partner sailed by again, the girl smiling gaily into his eyes. Besides, no one decides to join up with Valraker, Kier continued. He chooses them, not the other way around. I stand corrected. Sir Frederick placed his goblet deliberately on the table. Aidan's blood, the man was eye-catching, but that was where the attraction ended. Somewhat disappointed, Kier closed the subject by turning her head and body to watch the handsome bard again, who had switched to a sea shanty. She chastised herself for her questionable decorum. As a guest, she ought to be less argumentative, or she'd make herself unwelcome. He works for Kian, she thought. He can't be that bad. Perhaps fatigue was simply wearing her patience thin. I'm going to turn in, Kier said. It's been a very long day. She plastered on a pleasant countenance and said good night to Sir Frederick. I'm sure I'll see you later. Jeskelin moved silently down the alley and found the door he sought. He passed his hand over the latch and whispered the cantrip to open it. He peered cautiously around before stepping all the way in, dark eyes searching the hazy, smoke-filled room for anyone he needed to avoid. Too late, he saw one such person in a far corner. That fellow had spotted him first. 
Unable to escape what he knew would be an uncomfortable encounter, Duskellan nodded and reluctantly wended his way between tables and chairs that were too close together. He glanced furtively about the room for any other familiar faces to whom he could retreat once the diviner was through with him. The smoke billowed as he passed through it and closed in around him, eerily reflecting the red firelight. "'Evening, Trevile. I had hoped not to see you.' "'Jeskelin! Sit! Sit!' the wizened, wiry old man gestured enthusiastically. "'I have such fascinating things to impart to you!' Trevile pronounced every syllable so precisely in his high-pitched nasal drone that it made Jeskelin think of a mosquito with hiccups, and he wanted very much to swat it. Of course, it could have been the things Trevile said that bothered him, not so much the old diviner's voice. He hoped it would be a short encounter, but politeness mixed with a morbid curiosity held him in place. The ever-present fine silver chain was rolled into a ball, and using both hands, Trevile held it up against Jeskelin's forehead, chanting sibilantly in some ancient tongue. He rolled his hands around and around it and fingered the chain lovingly, the way a tailor experiences an exceptional fabric. "'Do not worry, my friend. I will not tell you your own future today.' His burn-scarred face held a permanent tightness that was accentuated when he smiled, an effort that looked as though it pained him, though in truth it did not any longer. The accident had occurred long before Jaskelin's time. The man who had thrown the oil lamp was long since gone, trampled by three runaway horses just outside Revelin not six weeks later, exactly how Trevile had described the event just prior to being hit with the lamp. Trevile had forgiven the poor sod. After all, he had been shocked, and it wasn't as if his reaction was a complete surprise to Trevile. The ancient man's eyes glittered as he released the contents of his hand, splashing it onto the table, and Jaskelin jumped in his hard wooden chair. <laughs> A little nervous, are we? the old man wheezed. Jaskelin ignored him and took a keen interest in the very unusual wire mesh lamp that hung just above the diviner's left shoulder. The long silver chain strewed itself over the table, molding itself into the uneven surface in a bizarre pattern of loops and angles. The tiny chain links sparkled red in the firelight, reflecting Trevile's bright eyes. Whenever he released the chain, the diviner poured with delight over the story the links were about to tell. Jaskelin found his enjoyment unnerving. He loved foretelling a man's death as much as predicting when he'd meet his true love. Jaskelin shuddered. At least the dangers of his own method of magic were unambiguous, indisputable. But fortune-telling was useless. Why would anyone want to know the future? It wasn't as if you could escape it. No matter how hard a person tried to avoid a thing, it always found a way to come about. Oh, certainly, some would argue that it was nice to know beforehand so you could prepare. But Jaskelin's view remained. No matter what your behavior, the event would take place anyway. This old geezer's stories always haunted Jaskelin for weeks afterward. The mage tried to appear relaxed and failed. In an effort to stop the bouncing of his right knee, he planted his heels firmly on the stone floor. "'It is for your whole party that I read, not for you alone,' Trevile whispered. "'Oh, when you leave the city, you will be one fewer!' "'Not a remarkable piece of news,' Jaskelin said dryly. "'We've known all along that Valraker would not be leaving with us.' "'Ah, is it something more diverting you would like to know?' 
He leaned forward eagerly, peering more closely at the links that laid out people's lives before him. Jeskellen regretted his comment. "'Your number will decrease again before you reach your destination.' Jeskellen adopted a nonchalant air. Really, this information meant nothing to him. "'Hmm, this is most interesting,' Trevial enunciated sibilantly. "'There is one in your party who is not what he seems. "'Hmm, but the link is in shadow. I cannot tell more about the one.' There is no intention of deceit, I believe. You see that link there? It has fallen into this knife gouge in the table and is on a rakish angle. Jeskellen suddenly found that the conversation at the table behind him was rather absorbing, as was the view of the girl who delivered tankards of ale to the two long-haired death grips over against the far wall who intensely studied a piece of scroll. There are two among you who will grow in authority, gain superiority, though in different ways. Someone is more powerful than you. You must take care that... Jeskellen sliced the air with his hand. Don't tell me about myself. I don't want to know. Trevile looked at him with an expression of patronizing amusement. Very well. But that which I would have foretold is long away. You need not trouble yourself about it. And he gathered up the chain in his hand again, rolling it around and caressing it lovingly. I will talk to you about something else. He released the chain again, with less of a thrust behind it this time. Glancing up at his companion, he said, I watched you all ride into the city today. Oh, yes? There is one I have not seen before. A woman. Yes, that is Kier. Yes, Kier. The diviner took a perfunctory glance at his chain. Her aura is green, very dark. Is that so? Jeskellen fidgeted in his chair. What is the significance of that? She is young, he said idly, leaving Jeskellen uncertain how the comment related to the question. But Treval was not finished. She has considerable strength and courage, which she needs. He lowered his nasal voice, and Jeskellen had to lean forward to hear him. She has brought danger to your party. She will bring more. The girl is in grave danger herself, directly and indirectly, from multiple origins. She will make errors in her trust. He ran his finger along the chain, following its twists and curves. At one point, the chain developed a tiny fold, and the diviner tapped the table next to it. He whispered, She is soon to generate a bitterly vengeful enemy. Jeskellen stared at him, frozen through a long-held breath. Then, I must go. He got up, knocking over his chair and garnering much more attention than he wished. He had hoped to have a brief discussion with Trevile, then leave him to find one of his other wizard acquaintances to trade stories and boast about his quick progress with the particularly difficult beast-summoning spell. But not this time. He was far too uneasy after Trevile's little horror report— the mage adopted a determinedly steady gait that carried him between chairs, tables, and magic users, gripping his staff before him like an amulet. The door flew open with a wave of his hand, and he stepped out into the warm evening air, gasping it in, the smoke from inside wafting out after him. He walked the streets of Shale for quite some time, seeking an elusive calm. And that's it for Chapter 6. So, Kier has learned some things about people, and next week she makes some questionable choices. (laughs) 
In other news, I finally posted a video on the Itty Bitty Big Band Facebook page. So Gord Hembriff and I, who make up the Itty Bitty Big Band, we each recorded our parts, and I tossed them into iMovie, and voila! You can check that out if you're of a mind on Facebook, the Itty Bitty Big Band. This is our queen cover of uh, Dreamer's Ball, so that's a hoot. Thank you so much for, for continuing to come back and check out what's happening with Totally Fantastic Title. Thank you once again to my never-ending supportive family, Matt, David, Heather, and Maggie. As always, David and Sharon, the original six, and of course, to you. Now, go be fantastic. <laughs>